Thanks for listening to the Downtown Community Church Podcast. My name is William, and I'm the Executive Director here at DCC. DCC is located in downtown Tallahassee, and our heart is to reach the city through loving God, making disciples, and being great neighbors. We recently launched a new building campaign called Building Opportunities. Over the years, we've seen God do some incredible things, and we're excited about this next step we're taking as a church. To learn more about the building campaign and to see how you can be a part, visit downtowncommunitychurch.com. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's sermon. It's a joy to be with you all. I'm glad and honored to be able to serve you guys by, uh, and gals by giving you the word. So um, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Uh, Titus chapter 2 will be in verses 11 uh, through 14, so turn, scroll, click, or stare at the screen. All right, Titus chapter 2, starting at verse 11, and it reads, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Uh, If you want to title the message today, or if you're taking notes, the title of the message is called Grace for Godliness. Grace for Godliness. So Paul has written this letter to Titus. Titus is, uh, as Paul says in the beginning of the letter in verse 5, he's left Titus in Crete. Paul was in Crete uh, doing what he does, a lot of church planting and things like that. But he's left Titus in Crete as sort of the chief elder and pastor, and he's now commissioned him to sort of give... um, qualifications for other elders that need to be set in place. And he spends a good portion of this letter after he talks about the qualifications in chapter 1 and chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, talking about the the type of conduct that people are to have if they're going to be members and uh, functioning inside of the body of Christ. So if you're in Titus 2, uh, I'm going to just read a few things that he throws out um, through verses 1 through 10. He says that the older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled, and sound in faith and love. The older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slave to much wine, and teach what is good. The young women need to be self-controlled, to love their husbands and children, to be kind, working at home, and submissive to their own husbands. He also talks about slaves and uh, bond servants that are to be submissive to their masters and everything and be well-pleasing and not argumentative. So that in all these things that everybody would adorn and beautify the teaching and truth about who God is. And a lot of us, this is what we know of Christianity. Some of us here may not even be Christians. And what you may know about Christianity is, is and, and from your perspective, you may see it just like every other religion is that it's about these do's and don'ts and about being a better person. And that's kind of what you see in Titus 2 verses 1 through 10 is that this is, there's this high standard of godliness, right? And this, this standard does not uh, lower once you come to Christ, but this is the standard of how we ought to live as those who are redeemed. And so some of you may think that, oh, this is what it is. This is what I need to be about. I need to be about doing these things. But the primary difference in Christianity and other religions is going to be seen here in verses 11 through 14, because some of us understand a lot of the laws. Some of us come from church backgrounds and have been kind of had a lot of these standards pushed on us, and we've spent a lot of time trying not to buck against it, uh, but at the same time not feeling power and uh, real uh, impetus and compelling to really walk in all of those laws, and it becomes burdensome to us. And Paul understood this. He understood that as Titus would be teaching these things to his people, 
that the, those people would have the question, well, Titus, how can you demand us to live this way? This is such a high standard. I don't know if I can be able to carry all of this out. And the same question that we have, how can God expect us to live self-control, to abstain from sexual immorality, to have pure mouths and be men and women of integrity, to be giving and submissive and humble and loving and all these things? The difference between Christianity and other religions and the reason that we can live godly is seen here in verse 11. Look at it. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. See, every other religion starts off by saying, if you want to be saved, you need to go ahead and try to live this thing out in such a way that you would become pleasing to God. But Titus, and Paul, what Paul says to Titus is that God's grace has already appeared, and because God has been gracious, and because he has already saved you, you can now live a life that is pleasing to him. It says the grace of God has appeared. The, the word for appeared is what we get our uh, English word epiphany from. It means that God's grace has all of a sudden been put on display. And we know that this is not just talking about grace as some abstract theological concept of unmerited favor, but he's speaking of God's grace as it has been displayed in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. See, in Christ, God has come to us. He has come in all of his grace, being willing to give us favor and life and mercy that we do not deserve. Because we, in and of our sin, have identified with Adam who decided to disobey God and therefore was separated from God. And all of us, are, we live in a state of separation from God. We are what Paul would say and what the Bible says, we are in our flesh. We live according to our own standard. And what we find out in the Bible is that being in the flesh doesn't just mean I uh, live contrary to what God wants, which is true, but that I'm actually an enemy of God, that I live in resistance to God and resistance to his authority and resistance to his word. And because God is king and judge, a king and a judge rightfully judges criminals. And if I live a life of sin, not living in submission to God, but living on my own terms and what I think is right, then that means I am too worthy of judgment from this king and God. But the good news of the gospel tells us that in his son, God comes. He leaves heaven, takes on the form of man, and then lives the perfect life of obedience in my place. He lives that obedience because it's only through being obedient to God that we can enjoy fellowship and favor with God. And Christ comes not because he needed to earn, but because he was already righteous before God. He lives out this obedience. And although he was sinless, he chose to bear the punishment, that judgment, from the king and judge, he died on the cross and bore God's wrath for our sin. And he was raised from the dead, showing that God accepted his life and death as the only way through which men could be made right with him. And so now this grace has appeared and been put on display in what Christ has already done for us in the past. And it says here in Titus 2, uh, verse 11, that this grace brings salvation to all people. Because in and of ourselves, we have no way to be delivered from our sin. Our sin permanently separates us from God and makes us worthy of God's judgment. Indeed, God stands ready to judge any, any and every person who is not in right standing with him. And so we need to be delivered. And if you look in the scriptures, what, one of the constant themes you see is that salvation only belongs to God. And unless God saves, men will be lost. Men will die. Men will be damned. But God has come to us in Christ and he's brought this deliverance to us. He's made it possible now by just not by working, but by receiving and accepting all that Christ is to that he is for me. Just because I believe and I receive it. 
He's made it available for each and every one of us to be saved. And that's why he says it's made available to all people. Because in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul has just talked about all these different categories of people. Old men, old women, young men, young women, masters, bondservants, each and every person rich, poor, black, white, male, female. The grace of God can save even you. And for many of us, we know it has saved us. And this is good news that God does not discriminate. The gospel is available. It's the power of God to save everyone who believes, the Jew first and the Gentile. And God's grace has appeared. So the question is, what has God's grace saved us from? Because oftentimes we grow up in our uh, churches and some of us even have, as we have a faint notion of Christianity, we think of God's salvation mainly as future oriented. It saves me from the wrath to come. But what we find out in this passage is that the wrath to come is not primarily even what God's grace saves us from. God's grace saves us from sin itself. And because God's wrath is against sin, it saves us from his wrath. But the, good, the only reason that makes a difference is because if I'm saved from God's wrath in the future, then that really doesn't have anything to do with the way I live in the here and now. But if God's grace in Christ has saved me from sin even now, then that means it transforms the way I live. So not only will I be uh, saved from the penalty of sin in the future, but I can be saved from the power of sin in the present. And so that is why Paul moves from speaking of grace's appearing in verse 11 to talk about grace's activity. In verse 12, look, see what grace does. It says, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And so the reason that we live godly lives and we live in obedience to God and to his word is because in Christ Jesus, God's grace is right now training us, right? That word for training us is similar to a person who takes the, a child and rears them up and prepares them to go off to school, right? And so God's grace, it trains us in that way. We are God's children, aren't we? We just sang the song that he's a good, good father. And just like no good father would just leave their child to raise themselves, our father in heaven by his grace trains us not to live this life on our own, trying to figure this thing out by ourselves, but he works in us, training us to live lives that are pleasing to him. And he does this by doing two things. He trains us to say no and to deny, and he trains us to say yes and to grab hold of. And it's kind of like what Jesus says in Luke. He says, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so it's similar to what Paul says here. First, it says he trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness is, a, is that attitude, that lack of reverence to God, a lack of knowing God and responding to who he is, right? If you look in the Old Testament, one of the foremost and primary commands that is constantly seen over and over and over and over again is to fear God. We ought to treat him with reverence and awe and respect because of who he is as God and King. But in and of ourselves, because of our sinfulness, we naturally don't do that. That's why sometimes people are more uh, concerned with actual curse words than saying the Lord's name in vain, because we don't have a category to esteem God as he should rightly be honored and exalted. But we're more concerned with not saying these cuss words than we are about abusing the name of 
God. And that's why when Jesus prays in the model prayer, the first petition he has is, may your name be honored as holy. Hallowed be your name. Because in and of ourselves, we don't treat God the way he ought to be treated. We don't respond to him as we should. We are ungodly. But God in the gospel and through Christ Jesus shows us where our ungodliness leads. It leads to death because that's where sin took Christ. It took him to the cross to bear God's wrath. And so we understand now the true face of ungodliness. It's not beautiful. It's not tempting, but it's damning and killing. It causes us to die. Paul said that sin deceives us and it kills us. And so God's grace trains us to see sin for what it is and trains us to say no. Because we see what sin has done to Christ. It has abused him. It put the crown of thorns in his head. It put the lashes on his back. It drove the nails into his hands. And that's the same thing that sin wants to do to us. And so God's grace shows us that we must, and it even gives us the power to say no to ungodliness. But not only ungodliness in our relation to God, but it trains us to say no to worldly passions. And these worldly passions are what take place in and of ourselves. We all have these desires as we live here on this earth, and we desire to amass our own kingdoms, so to speak. We desire to pursue what's good to us for our families and our kids and our jobs and our hobbies and our uh, habits and the things that we like. But the grace of God shows us that our passions for those things are out of order. It's causing us to worship and serve these created things rather than worship and serve the Creator. And some of you who may not be Christian in here may, may think, well, there's, I'm not worshiping anything. No, no, no. I actually uh, desire to live in a right relationship with God. You may not desire to live in a right relationship with him at all. But what the scripture shows us is that if you are allowing your desires to dictate the way you live, then you are worshiping, in a sense, yourself. You're not following God. You are following yourself. You're in actually in opposition to God is what the scripture would tell us, and that God's grace, the good news is that you don't have to stay there. Some of you are are struggling with sins, and you have crutches and addictions and burdens that have uh, been over you. Maybe you have been abused in the past, and you seem to bear that burden, and you can't seem to escape from it, but the good news is that God's grace trains you that those things no longer define the way you live. Those worldly passions that seem to grab hold of your heart, that lust that resides so deep within you that seems to dictate the way you deal with every man or every woman you come across, no longer has a hold on you because God's grace has delivered you from that in Christ. Because when Christ died, it says in Romans 6 that our old man died as well. Our old man that was a slave to sin, or like Paul says in Ephesians 2, uh, that we lived in the passions of our flesh and we carried out the desires of our body and of our mind. That's how it was before God's grace had come to us. But now that God's grace has appeared, we are free. We're no longer slaves to ourselves. And now we can live in a way that is pleasing to God. And so these worldly passions and ungodliness are things that we must deny and grace trains us to deny them, and it trains us on the flip side to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's what it says at the end of verse 12. So we have this saying no to this, or walking away from this, and saying yes to this, and that's really what repentance looks like, right? That's the word we constantly hear in response to what God has done for us in Christ. It says that we must repent and believe, and some of us were like, I know that word repentance. I've heard it so many times, but what does it mean? It means to say no to your former manner of life, and to say yes to living life on God's terms. 
And that's exactly what we see take place in this passage. And God's grace enables us to be able to do that. And so it says to live self-control, upright and godly lives in the present age. One thing to note is that this covers almost every sphere of life. Self-controlled or uh, sensible or temperate, depending on what version you have, that has to do with the way we relate to ourselves. Upright has to do with the way we relate to others. And godly has to do with the way we relate to God. And so the way we live, when in ourselves, the way we relate and love our neighbor and the way we love God is all rectified by God's grace to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's grace trains us to live self-controlled. Right? And you may say, well, how in the world does, does that work? Well, in the gospel, we see the truth and how glorious Jesus is. We see the God man. and He's called the word because he's God's primary communication and revelation to us of himself. And so in Christ, we see that there is a God who is not just powerful and sovereign and in control, but who also is compassionate and loving and desires for us to experience all that life has to offer. And it shows us how precious Christ is in comparison to this world. In the gospel, we find out that all that is in the world is really going to perish and it's really not worth living for. But we find out that there is one who escaped the death and dying state of this world and has been raised from the dead and now invites us to enjoy eternal life with him. And the gospel tells us that if we will be with him, we must abandon the way we used to live. We cannot allow our our worldly passions to run rampant and dictate the way we live, but we must instead control ourselves, not to earn his favor, but because we have already received his grace. And we control ourselves now because we wish to desire and delight in him right? There's some things, my lovely wife is over here, and there's some things I won't do that I want to do. There's very slick remarks. I have a very, very slick mouth, and I have very many things to say, and sometimes she'll ask me, what you said? And, you know, sometimes I, I decide not to say anything, and it's like, that was not going to be edifying, right? Because I know that I would offend my wife, and so that leads to me having a desire to control my tongue, Right? I exhibit self-control because there is a love that is greater than the love I have to fulfill my worldly passions. And in the same way, God's grace trains us because it shows us the beauty and glory of Christ. It shows us this God who would die for sinners who don't love him. It shows us this person who has a desire to make all men and women whole if they would come to him. It shows us someone who would leave heaven and come to earth so that he could grab those who would want not heaven but hell, and grab them and say, no, you're going to come and enjoy heaven with me. It shows us a God who is completely otherworldly in his beauty and his greatness. And for the sake of that God, I can exhibit a little bit of self-control. And, but not only does it train us to uh, live self-controlled lives, but also to live upright lives, because we see how Jesus lived. Right. And the gospel shows us an example. That's why so many of us spend time reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke and John to see what is it? What what was it like? What was Jesus like as he walked the earth? How did he live? And we see that he lived in such a way that he loved his neighbor so that even those who were his enemies, he loved. And that is very apparent to us because in the gospel, we find out that we are his enemies. We are those who have lived against his kingdom and authority. We are those who have decided to enjoy the things that he hates. But we find out, as it says in Romans 5, that as we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that if you look in the Old Testament law and you see how God would tell Israel that if you saw your enemy's donkey that was astray and you knew it was his, 
your responsibility was to take it back to him, even though he was your enemy. You were to exhibit love for your enemy because God in Christ, as he dies on that cross, dies for those who hate him to show his love for us. And God's grace, as it is revealed to us in Christ, trains us to live that exact same type of love. If we have truly experienced the love of God, the undeserved, unmerited love of God, then it is not difficult for us to display that same love to others. God's grace trains us to live upright lives. And not only self-controlled and not only upright, but also godly lives, because in the gospel we are restored to fellowship with God. So Adam in the garden in Genesis 3 um, decides to eat the fruit, and he's immediately kicked out of the garden. And the garden is the place where God's presence, intimate presence, was abiding at the time. God would come in the cool of the day and commune with Adam. And as soon as Adam sinned, Adam hid himself. He no longer wanted to enjoy fellowship and communication with God because of his sinfulness. And God, in a, a, in a, in a sense of almost affirming, yes, Adam, you must be separate from me in my holiness because I cannot look favorably on sin, kicks Adam out of the garden out of his presence, and so there is no communication between man and God. See, some of us, uh, we, we say, we, we, we understand that we're not, we wouldn't call ourselves Christians, we haven't truly believed the gospel, um, but we think that God is just on cool terms with everybody, right? And we say, no, I'm good with God, I pray every night, or um, I read my Bible every now and then, or I'm a good person, I don't cuss in front of kids, I don't run old ladies over, I help them across the street, and things like that. But the truth is, is that in and of ourselves, we don't enjoy any relationship with God. Because just like Adam, our sins have separated us from God as well. So that we can no longer enjoy fellowship and intimacy and friendship with him as Adam did. And so we are all by nature ungodly. We don't have character like God. We don't want what he wants. We don't love what he loves. And so how in the world can we have a friendship with him? But the good news is that God, by his grace, through Christ Jesus, reconciles, brings us back into right relationship with him. And now the, the line of intimacy that was once sliced has now been repaired so that we can now enjoy relationship and fellowship and intimacy with God himself. We don't have to come to a man to get a relationship with God through a man, but we come to Jesus Christ, the God-man, and he brings us not just to himself, but he brings us to God so that our fellowship with God is restored and we can relate to him rightly in fear, in reverence, in love, in joy, in obedience to him. But only God's grace can train us to do that. And it's good news because that means that God has already done all the work. See, some of us think that we have to do all the work in being godly. No, the good news is that God has already laid the foundation. You just got to build the building. The foundation is the most important part because without a foundation, the building falls. But God's grace in Christ has made it possible now for all who would believe in Christ and receive him for all that he is can live a godly life. We can live in obedience to him. And so Titus, as Titus is preaching these imperative verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2, can come back to this and say, no, God's grace has trained you. It's appeared and it's now training each and every believer to live in this way. And so if you're in Christ, or if you say you claim to be in Christ, I have to ask you, do you have a desire? Is there a sincere striving in your life and in your heart to live this way? When you sin, are you, uh, when you think a bad thought, are you, 
um, react emotionally wrong or when you say a, something that's kind of off or you do something evil, are you okay as long as nobody finds out? Or do you immediately understand that you've offended a holy God? Is there a grief in you? Is there a desire to abandon those ways? And the good news is, is that if there's a desire, not because you've been exposed, but because you stand before God and you don't want to displease him, if there's a desire in you to abandon those ways, that's evidence that God's grace is training you. That's evidence that God's grace is teaching you already to renounce and say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to instead say yes to being self-controlled, being upright and being godly. But if there is no sense of conviction, if you are okay as long as no one finds out, then perhaps, friend, God's grace has not been made manifest in your life. Because the grace of God here, it says, is not seen necessarily in allowing somebody to live a life of abundance, as some people say, a life of financial prosperity and, and relative ease. But God's grace is seen in that it trains people to reject unrighteousness and to live righteously. That's proof of God's favor. And so God's grace has appeared. God's grace is active in training us. But not only that, God's grace anticipates. So look at verse 13. It says that we are waiting for our blessed hope. So as we live this life, we live looking forward to this blessed hope. And what is this hope, it says? In verse 13, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we live this life, we're not living for no reason. We are living with the end in mind. We have something that we are looking forward to. And this looking forward to is the appearance one day of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, where he will be magnified and seen for all of the value and glory and honor that he deserves. Oftentimes, especially in America, because our lives um, many times don't have some of the complications that others' lives would um, because of our abundance, um, we are so focused on the here and now that we aren't really concerned for the future, right? And that makes us like a sprinter with no finish line, right? So uh, the Olympic trials, I think, are this weekend for track and field. And if you watch, um, those men are going to run. And when they run that 100-meter dash, they are running down that straightaway to a finish line, okay? If they don't have a finish line, they're just going to keep running. Uh, Sprinting a race with no finish line is, is just going with no direction. There's no purpose. And in the same way, if we live our lives with no ultimate goal, no ultimate uh, finish line to run toward, then we are living our lives as if we have no purpose. And so, Christian, I encourage you, think often of Christ and his second coming. Think about the fact that one day, though it seems right now that your priorities are out of order and people look at you weird because you would rather please God than enjoy the things that would be displeasing to him, one day... His glory is going to be made plain for all to see, and it will, he will be seen for all that he is worth. And it will, then in that moment, we will recognize, no, living for him is all that matters. One day. One day, all the suffering and turmoil that happened because men choose to live against God and his word, all that suffering will be done away with because when he appears, everyone will know, every knee will bow, every tongue con- will confess that he is Lord, that he must be obeyed and honored as king. One day, one day it will be apparent that he is all that matters. And we live our lives looking forward to that day because the good news tells us that in that day, the king will come for his people. 
Right? When Jesus comes in the Gospels and says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's good news for some and bad news for others. The coming of a king is not good to somebody who has been a rebel of the state. An enemy of the state does not really want to be around the presence of the king because if he gets caught, off with his head. But for those who are members of the kingdom, they delight in the presence of their good and righteous king because that king comes to save. That king comes to deliver. That king comes to shepherd and to lead. And one day, this is our blessed hope. And hope here does not, is not hope in our sense of hope. I might say, I hope it's not hot today because I don't want to go outside and sweat walking from that door to my car, which is really not that far away, right? But in, in that kind of hope, I'm not really sure if that is really going to come to pass. I'm just kind of like really hoping, right? But this notion of hope, it speaks of a confident expectation of something that you know is going to happen and you're just kind of waiting for it. So this is the kind of hope of a person who has been homeless and hasn't been able to have a job for two years. Uh, when they finally get a job interview and somebody says, we'll see you on Monday. Different type of hope. So that Sunday night, Monday isn't here yet, but Monday's coming. And I haven't had a job in forever. I haven't been able to make money in forever. But now I can make money and I can have an actual job. And so there is a confident anticipation and joyful expectation of what is going to come in the future. That is the kind of hope that we have as Christians. So it's not that we live this life hoping that one day Jesus is going to come back and end all suffering. It's not that we live this life hoping that Jesus is one day going to come back and deliver us from our own sinfulness. It's not that we're hoping one day that Jesus is going to come back and do these things because we don't know that it's going to happen. But we expect it to happen. And we live this life knowing, not, not wondering, not wishing, but knowing that we will all stand before him. And as we stand before him, we will stand as those who have been declared righteous because of what he has done, because he has borne the penalty for our sin, because he has lived a perfect righteousness in our place to make us right with God. And one day we will be able to live with him and enjoy him forever. But if you haven't followed Christ, what are you looking forward to? As you live this life, you kind of know that you ought to do certain things. But in the grand scheme of things, if you're just going to die and be gone away with, then what's really the point of it all? Friend, do you have something that you're looking forward to? Do you have something that you are living for? Is there, do you have a, anything that goes beyond the grave? Or is it just you trying to have your best life now? But grace trains us to live godly now because it has appeared in the past and gives us hope in the future. And so the reason we can live godly lives is because grace has appeared. Grace is active in training us. Grace trains us to anticipate the appearing of Christ. But also grace has an agent. There is somebody here in verse 14 who has brought all this to pass. And this somebody is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And look at what it says about him in verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. First, it says that our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us. And this giving of himself refers to his death on the cross. Christ, when he was on the cross, was not there for his own sake. He had no sin to be punished for. It says the wages of sin is death, but Christ never sinned. So he did not have to die. He did not need to die. There was no connection between him and death. But he gave himself for us. Just as those sacrifices in the 
Old Covenant in Leviticus, uh, those sacrifices are offered up on behalf of the sins of the people. Christ offered himself on behalf of our sin, bearing God's wrath in our place. That's what it means that he gave himself for us. But there was a purpose. He wasn't just dying for no reason. And he wasn't just dying so that God's wrath would be satisfied. It says here he was dying to redeem us from all lawlessness. There are two reasons. He redeems us from all lawlessness and he purifies us to be his own possession. So he redeems us from all lawlessness. This word redeem, redemption, really churchy word, right? It sounds really cool if you can use it rightly. But, but what does it mean, right? To redeem is to set somebody free by the price of a ransom. So release by ransom equals redemption, okay? And Christ paid the price when he gave himself so that we could be released, so that we could be set free. And it says, what are we set free from? It says to redeem us from all lawlessness. Lawlessness is living life as if there is no law and there is no God. So when you see a kid, um, and I have a five-year-old brother, and sometimes you tell him to do something and he just does the exact opposite. It's like, you not hear what I just said? Right? And some of y'all parents who have kids, y'all know, y'all know this for real because y'all been dealing with it for a long time. And it's as if you have given no law because they just decided to act as if your law did not exist. Right? That's the type of lawlessness he's talking about. Uh, he redeemed us from living lives that act like God has given us no code or standard to live by. Because in ourselves and in our sinfulness, our lives are defined by disobedience to God. Uh, Peter in 1 Peter calls them the feudal ways of your forefathers, right? We, we were, our lives were defined by living lives that had nothing to do with God and his word. And we belonged to those lives. They had a possession of us. But Christ has redeemed us. He's purchased us from that type of life. And if he's purchased us from lawless living, he purchased us to lawful living, being able to live now in right relationship with God. And that right relationship is defined by intimacy and obedience. So Christ has redeemed us from this lawlessness to be able to live in obedience to him. And that's why it says, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Because we used to be zealous for sin. Man, we pursue sin with everything we got. And when I say we pursue sin, I don't just necessarily mean that we pursue murder or that we pursue uh, grand theft or something like that. But I just mean we pursue lives that are not in line with God and his word. And if you are neglecting to live a life in line with God and his word, you are pursuing a life that is not in line with God and his word. Uh, there is no in between there. If you are not pursuing him, you are by definition running away from him. There is no in between. And you are zealous, if you are not zealous to live for God, you are therefore zealous to live against God. But the good news is that when Christ gave himself, he was purifying us, cleansing us from the uh, power of sin and the stain of sin in us so that we might be a people for his own possession. So we belong to him now. Christ calls us precious, a precious possession, a possession that he owns. Christ owns everything. In the Psalms it says, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and everything that dwells therein. But we, as God's people, are his precious possession. He prizes us above all creation because Christ did not die to redeem animals. He did not die to redeem mountains and valleys and oceans and trees and streams, but he gave his life 
to purify us, to purchase us, so that by his grace we would belong to him. And as those who belong to him, now we are zealous for good works. Um, Paul here is alluding to a statement that God makes in Deuteronomy when he talks to uh, Israel, when Moses is uh, talking about the law, and he says that God purchased you, he redeemed you from Egypt. He brought you out of Egypt that you might belong to him. And as those who now belong to God, you are to obey me. You are to live in right relationship with me. That's why if you look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, the first thing that God says is not, don't have any other gods before me. The first thing he says is that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I've made you my own, that you might live as my own. And so this is what it means to live a godly life. And this is why we can live righteously. If you ask yourself in a moment of temptation or as you are struggling with the sin, I feel like I can't get past this thing. It's bothering me. It's plaguing me. Like Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? The grace of God has appeared to you, and it saved you from sin, and it's training you right now to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and it's training you to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives, not sometime in the future, but in this present age. It's training you to wait, to look forward to your blessed hope. So John says everybody who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. That hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ gave himself for you to purchase you from lawlessness and to purify you to belong to him and be zealous for good works. So let us be people who live not trying to earn God's favor, but though, as those who have already received it. Amen. I'm going to pray and we'll be dismissed. God... Um, we're so thankful and grateful for your grace. Um, in and of ourselves, we don't deserve it, because um, if, if we did, it wouldn't be grace. But we're so thankful that you have chosen to appear to us in the person and work of your son. That, God, you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in Jesus, leaving heaven, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Jesus, you humbled yourself by becoming obedient living that perfect righteousness in our place, and you were obedient all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross, bearing God's punishment for our sin. Now, by grace, God, you train us. You train us to live godly lives. And so even though, God, sometimes it doesn't feel like it, I pray that you would assure us, give us a sense of confidence and faith to believe this passage, that you are indeed within us, training us, Help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that God is at work in us, both to will and to do his good pleasure. I pray for those here who don't know you. And perhaps by your grace, you have sort of made it apparent to them. Father, I pray that you would give their hearts no rest until they have found satisfaction and peace with you through Christ. I pray that if there are questions that they would ask and that you would give us wisdom and discernment to be able to deal with those questions in a manner that represents you well, not only in your truth, but in your character, in the way that we answer the questions. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us all to live lives that adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Thank you for these things, and we ask for them for your glory. In your son Jesus' name, amen.